Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Over the last several months, businesses across America have publicly declared their commitment to social justice and inclusion. Have we reached a turning point in the long fight for equity? In this week's episode, we welcome Roosevelt trustee Joyce E. Tucker to talk about her new role at the university and her perspective on this moment of reckoning. Joyce is the former Vice President of Global Diversity and Employee Rights for the Boeing Corporation. With more than 30 years of experience, she is a nationally recognized expert in equal employment opportunity and affirmative action. We spoke with Joyce about the future of diversity and inclusion, as well as her goals on the Roosevelt Board of Trustees. Enjoy. To get started, Trustee Tucker, please tell us a little bit about your background and your work with Boeing Corporation. Okay, I've been in the equal employment opportunity, diversity and inclusion work for the majority of my professional career. And what's really interesting to me is I got into this career after having been discriminated against. I was working at Department of Mental Health, and some promotions came up, and there were four of us for three promotions. Okay. And I was the only person of color in the group. And at the same time, I was the most highly rated in the performance evaluations, and I didn't get it. So I went to my supervisor, and I said, why? And uh, he hemmed and hawed. And finally, he said, I picked the person I was the most comfortable with. Oh, and wow. Said, well, that's not a very good reason for selection. And then he absolutely did say this. He said, I'm a male chauvinist pig and I can pick whoever I want. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, no, that is not <laughs> going to happen here. So I filed a discrimination complaint with the headquarters office and the gentleman there who was in charge of labor relations came and he had the hearing. And after a year delay, I won the job. I won the promotion and I won the back pay. Well, shortly after that, he had an affirmative action position downtown. And he asked, what is that young lady doing out at Tinley park? So he sought me out to fill that position. Oh, wow. But for the discrimination, I never would have gotten the job (laughs) because there was no way that I would have had any exposure to him. Yeah. So I was in that position and it was early in the affirmative action era before we really knew what the word was. And I was going to law school at night and made the decision 
that because of the challenge that I had in that particular area, that I wanted to become a lawyer focusing on anti-discrimination. So all of my studies at the majority of my studies, elective studies at John Marshall Law School was in that particular area. So going to law school at night, learning about discrimination, non-discrimination, and doing the job in the daytime, I just got numerous promotions in mental health. And then the governor decided he was going to create legislation, creating this, what we called super agency, Department of Human Rights. Okay. And I was asked to work on the merger. And why? Because one of the gentlemen who was at Tinley Park when I filed the discrimination had been hired by the governor. He knew me and he suggested that the governor should select me as someone to get involved in that activity. And so I say to young people, you can take lemons and make lemonade. Right, exactly. But you you have seen, obviously, corporate attitudes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. about diversity and inclusion evolve over your career. What have you seen? You know, in one and, you know, Boeing as well as most uh, corporations. Right. Well, you know, going on the career, I was the director of human rights for the state of Illinois. Then I ended up being a commissioner at EEOC. Mm-hmm. So from the viewpoint of a person who was responsible for making sure that the laws were here to, I've seen that it started off with corporations being very resistant because it was comply with the law. And the law said, you shall not discriminate, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The law said, if you were a public contractor from 1965, Executive Order 11246, you have to have affirmative action plans. So it was just a matter of, this is the law. I'm going to comply with the law, but I'm going to be very resistant because I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Then many, many years later, there was a movement, diversity and inclusion. Let's change the culture. This is here. I would say those enlightened corporations decided that it's more about let's do something because somebody forced us to do it. Let's do it because it's the right thing to do and it's a business smart thing to do. So they evolved into a more, the the good companies, they evolved into a more progressive position. And I think that benefited them as well as it benefited the employees. But for their taking those kind of actions would have been shut out from jobs that they were qualified for. Yeah. Well, you know, diversity and inclusion are clear moral imperatives, and you just made a business case for it as well. Mm -hmm. And so what have you seen in that regard, that businesses that do DNI correctly also have an advantage in their business? Well, you know, we would start off at Boeing in, in emphasizing the fact that it was morally the right thing to do. 
And in addition to that, it's the business smart thing to do. And at that time, you know, there were a number of research studies and uh, several come to mind. There was one study done by Scott Page from the University of Michigan. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating about that, he mathematically proved that diverse groups were better at problem solving than heterogeneous groups. It was based upon how they looked at the problems and how they solved the problems. And there was another study that we really liked from Cedric Herring from University of Illinois. And he looked at over 500 corporations and he compared like corporations with each other and saw that the ones that had the most diversity were the most profitable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and you could look at catalyst studies that did the same thing in terms of women in the hierarchies of the company. So all of that information presented said, if you have diverse groups, you're going to be better at problem solving. You're going to be more profitable. It's smart. It's right, morally right. And at the same time, it's business smart. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in the wake of this year's racial protests, many companies have now committed to investing more in diversity and inclusion. Does this feel to you like a turning point? And what do you think are the obstacles remaining to equity in the workplace? Well, you know, just listening to that question, I have mixed emotions. Mm -hmm. I think however people are motivated to do the right thing is a good thing. So when they say we're going to start moving forward in this area, I give them a hand clap, but it's not an arousing hand clap. (laughs) Part of me is saying, you should have been doing this. This is something that has always been morally right. This is something that has always been the law. This is something that we as a people are entitled to, really not a gift. Mm-hmm. You're qualified, your business will do better. And at the same time, you're telling me you're going to do what you should have been doing all along. <laughs> so that's why I have mixed emotions. Now, I'm happy. You know, it, there's something that says a good deed, no matter how long it's taken, it's a good deed. Right. What I will have to see having been in this business for so many, 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 many years, I want to see it executed. Right. And I think, and I've always been ready and encourage people who have the knowledge to help those who are trying to do the right thing. So that's why I say I have mixed emotions, but I would be delighted if we move forward because it's been long enough. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the uh, whole notion of cultural change as we bring people who look different than us, no matter who we are, from race to gender to religion to LGBTQ status and so forth, and we sit around the same table. It is interesting that when people open their minds and their heart and learn about each other's culture, And as one of my colleagues talks about 
crossing the threshold, the cultural threshold to the other side and see whoever is sitting next to you as equal. Yes. And not your culture is lower than mine. Mine is superior than yours, but equal. It is very hard then to go back. Right. To racism and all kinds of other isms that we try to prevent. So what you say absolutely resonates, and this is what we attempt to do in the university as well, to encourage students to have conversations and friendships and deep friendships with people who do not look like them, Mm -hmm. are not from the same communities, uh, don't have the same religion, so forth and so on. Now, of course, Joyce, uh, in addition to your nationally recognized work, you have also served on the boards of Near North Health Services Corporation and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Boys and Girls Club of Chicago. So what motivated you, motivated you to get involved in those organizations? Well, they provide much-needed assistance to uh-huh. the minority community. Uh, Near North is an organization that provides health care services on North Side, South Side, West Side. For those people who don't have the resources, they don't have insurance. It's available to anyone who needs the services. However, primarily African-Americans and Hispanics take advantage of the services. So, but for that type of organization, those individuals would go underserved. And medical help is something that we always need, particularly now. So, you know, they're filling a void and that that excites me. The Boys and Club, Boys and Girls Club, Martin Luther King Boys and Girls Club is located on the west side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it's the only Boys and Girls Club with the name Martin Luther King. Yeah. And they provide an opportunity for the kids to have a place to come after school, uh, leadership development. And the children over there do some very incredible things. We were raising money one time. And the kids decided, you're raising money for us. We need to play a role. (laughs) And they had a talent show. They sold food, hot dogs, potato chips, and raised money. And I was just so excited about the leadership and the talent. And they're owning a piece of the responsibility. So I just felt like I need to be involved in the community. I need to try to make a difference. And I was just very excited to do it. It was heartwarming. Of course. And, you know, you're helping children at that age. Then you also have helped corporations. On the other end, when our students start working and graduating and working in the corporations, now you are at Roosevelt University. Absolutely. A trustee of the Roosevelt University. And, of course, as you know, this year is a special milestone, mm-hmm. uh, 75th anniversary of our university. I want you to tell us a little bit about your uncle and his experience as a student in the early days of Roosevelt College, because that's a special story. I would love our listeners to hear that. Well, my uncle is 93 years old. And in 1948, three years after Roosevelt College, now Roosevelt University was created, he became a student. Uh, He had to work to help take care of his family, and he went to school. He was very 
excited about having gone to Roosevelt University. He said he found the school very open and it was very flexible because he talked about having a night class from 6.30 to 9.30, how easy it was to get to the school and how warm and receptive and helpful the professors were. And what is so amazing to me, at 93 years old, he could recall specifically how some of his professors helped him and how they interacted with him. I think the fascinating thing about his story is that he went to Roosevelt for three years and he didn't graduate. However, he applied to the University of Illinois Medical School and got accepted. So he became a doctor with his medical degree But he often talked about the fact that something was missing. And what was missing, he said, was his college degree. (laughs) And he would often talk about how much he regretted not having a college degree. And when I became a trustee, I mentioned it to you, President Ali, and I mentioned it to Pat Harris. And You got your heads together and made it happen. And several weeks ago, he got his diploma. He didn't know where it came from, but he also got a surprise ceremony just for him. So you as the president, the provost, the dean of his college, and the assistant chair was there, and I was there too, to (laughs) confer upon him his degree. And after chatting with him about his experiences, you went into the formal program, just like it would have happened. And he remarked about the fact that 67 years later, he got his college degree and he hasn't started talking about it. It was heartwarming. He is so proud of that. And it was something on his bucket list that isn't on there anymore. So we're all excited and we thank you for that. Oh, no, he has had a distinguished career as a physician. Yes. And this was the least we could do in the university. And, you know, it only took him 67 years to get a bachelor's degree. And here he is. It's wonderful. It's again, Magnificent story. Now, as a Roosevelt trustee, Joyce, uh, what impact do you hope to have on our students and our university in the next few years? Well, I'm new, Mm -hmm. and uh, so many great things are going on. And it gives me, as a trustee, it gives me the opportunity to look at the policies, employee and student-centric, and I think that'll be exciting for me. But what I also want to do is to be available to the students. You know, I'd like to be an active trustee because of the experiences that I've had, both in government and in corporations, in the civil rights arena. And we're doing a lot of things now. I'd like to have the opportunity to share and to listen, because I think that the students have so much to offer if we listen to them. And I think we have so much to share if they listen to us. Yeah. 
So I am interested in having a two-way dialogue. You know, how can I impart those things that I've learned, sometimes the hard way, (laughs) and how can I learn those things that I don't know because my experiences are not like theirs? There were a lot of things I was able to accomplish at a very, very, very young age. And even though I'm not at that same age now, I think some of those experiences they might be willing to listen to. Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, you said it, you know, helping the students. We do have a mentoring program that you become a mentor to undergraduate students. And, of course, Pat Harris, the chair of the board, as you know, your your close friend, also mentor several students, has already done it for five years now. So one secret we did not share with you until now is that one of the requirements of being on the board of trustees is that you have to mentor students. Okay, okay. <laughs> and here you are, volunteered. That's great. But also, you know, as we're getting ready to vote mm-hmm. on November 3rd, please give me, give our students and our faculty, staff, employees, everybody, your best advice about voting and what it means to you and perhaps some of your colleagues that you have seen, friends, family. What does that vote mean to you? Well, voting is something that is, you know, it's hard for me to describe how important it is because looking at the history of African-Americans, there was a time and it really wasn't all that long ago where we could not vote. Right. There were people who died for us to make sure that we had a right to vote. We were in situations where in order to vote, we had to guess how many jelly beans in a jar. <laughs> we were tested in almost any kind of way imaginable. And yet we persisted. We persisted. And the challenges that we have now, uh, 11 hours in, in Georgia trying to vote, they're unnecessary. But when I look at those individuals who stood in line for those 11 hours, many of them seniors, and I look at the camaraderie that took place to make sure that everybody voted and that they did not feel as oppressed as they should have felt. And I look at some of the challenges that we have and I say, you know, there is no excuse whatsoever. When I was growing up, I had a grandmother in North Carolina who was very much a senior citizen. She was in her late 70s. And we would call her up on the phone and we'd say, Graham, what are you doing? And she'd say, I'm getting ready to take the old people to vote. (laughs) Now, we kind of wondered who the old people were (laughs) because we figured, well, she was probably one of those. But she was committed to taking people to vote, to make sure they vote. I have a cousin here who takes elders to vote. They're in their 90s and they don't want to mail in their votes and they don't want to put them in a drop box. They want to vote. So he picks them up, puts them in the backseat of his car. They're masked up. He's masked up and he takes them to the polls. So if people can do these type of things, if a 90-year-old, a 93-year-old can go and vote and stand with canes, then we 
have no excuse. It's the most important thing that we can do, and we shouldn't take it for granted. Absolutely. Wow, what a wonderful story. And what a wonderful way to end our discussion, Joyce. Thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for being a trustee and really volunteering your time and your expertise to the university. And we look forward to many more conversations. Thank you. This is something I'm very proud to be a part of this organization, and it just warms my heart. All right. So thank you. Enjoy your day. You too. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.